the power of youth advocacy is that if you make youth advocates really strong, they're going to continue to be advocates for the rest of their lives. This is Climate Conversations. Before we get started, a quick note. If you haven't yet, please listen to episodes two through four in this season on Learning to Change, where we tell the stories of three groups who have modeled our season theme. We had to cut so much good stuff out to create those stories, so now we're releasing extended cuts of the individual interviews. We hope you'll like them as much as we do, and that they lead you to a richer appreciation for what it means to learn to change. So in this episode of season three, we talked to Rebecca Park, an alum of YouthCan, currently a government and economics teacher at a high school in New York. You might hear our producer Dave chiming in here. So today we are here for a fantastic new recording. We have Rebecca Park, a proud UCAN alumni and a public school educator. Uh, welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. So glad that you're here with us. So first question for you, Rebecca, what do you do? <laughs> so I am currently about to start my third year as a public school teacher in Brooklyn, New York. I teach high school government. Fantastic. And you're from the Boston area originally, right? I am. I grew up in Jamaica Plain and went to Boston Lot in high school. And how was that? It was a very important experience. It's a very big school, has a long history. Um, I think it's a great place to learn how to advocate for yourself and navigate systems of power. You learned how to navigate power. That's a pretty important skill, but now you're on the side of the man, aren't you? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> How does that feel like? Does it feel like ultimate authority or? Uh... I'm lucky to work at a school that really sees students and youth as equal partners and members of the school community. I also think, you know, having that experience as a student and trying to always refresh myself and having informal opportunities as students, whether it's going to workshops or going to professional development and remembering all the ways it feels to be a student, I try to make that inform how I treat my students in turn. Fantastic. I'm sure your students are thrilled if they're willing to admit it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. So you were a student at Boston Latin. I think you said you started 2008. As a ninth grader, tell us a story about how you, what led you to Youth Can Climate Action Network in the first place. Sure. So I come from a pretty political family, and I define that by meaning a family that discusses politics and what's going on in the world a lot, talks about history a lot, and especially has taught me that I have a greater civic responsibility than just voting, that there are major injustices in the world, um, and especially as someone with a lot of privilege, that it's my responsibility to be involved in trying to combat those injustices. So that's kind of the context. And I think coming out of middle school and going into high school where you feel like you're supposed to get to start to do bigger things, I wanted an outlet for that. And I sort of fell into youth camp. I had some neighbors who were a few years older than me who were involved who told me to come. And I immediately met Miss Arnold and was totally sucked in. She will make you feel immediately necessary in a really special way. And I just saw that this was a place where people were 
really working hard, working together, asking lots of questions, and it wasn't always clear about, okay, we've chosen this issue. Uh, it's a very multifaceted issue, climate justice. We weren't necessarily calling it that at the time, but that's what it was. This is a place where I want to be with like-minded people trying to spend their time making change. So you use the word climate justice, and of course, given your family background and your interest in justice issues more generally, what is climate justice for you? To me, climate justice is an understanding that climate change is bad for our entire human community and entire planet, but also has particularly adverse effects on communities that are already facing injustice. Low-income communities, communities of color, countries around the world with less advanced technology and with less access to resources, that climate change is a further aggravating factor around systems that have already marginalized a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And how did that play out in Boston Latin in the Youth Climate Action Network? What, what, what would I notice if I saw you grappling with climate justice at BLS? Yeah, it's fun to think about this in retrospect, because again, I don't think, I definitely don't think I fully understood that all the time, but I think one of the ways it started to make sense, when I was in 10th grade, we launched this project to try to get the state to incorporate sustainability into its teaching standards. And the word we kept using was systems thinking, and this idea that all these different systems that we're talking about are connected to each other, which you know goes beyond just climate issues. But I think that idea that the issues that we're talking about, even if it's good things that we're talking about, are not isolated things, that they're all connected to each other and contributing to each other. Mm-hmm. So I think that was the beginning. Also, as a history nerd and with Miss Arnold being a history teacher, I think that allowed for conversations about the way things are connected. And then as we moved on, I came to understand that especially Boston Latin has a very privileged role within Boston public schools for a variety of reasons. It's is the oldest public school in the country. And it because of that has an alumni association, a lot of access to resources and connections that most other Boston public schools don't have. And I think we came to understand that and then greater see the role of youth can helping to bring access to climate education and the things that we are starting to have access to to other schools in the Boston public school system weren't necessarily going to be given the kind of extra attention that we were. So Given your interest in climate, it's common to imagine climate change work, you know, through either an environmentalist lens or a scientific lens. Mm-hmm. But you're, you just said you're a history nerd, <laughs> teaching government. So how do you bring climate work into this seemingly non-climate discipline? Yeah, in high school, I think it was that it was the, I don't want to say the only because I don't feel like I have an exhaustive knowledge of the extracurricular opportunities at the time, but definitely the most prominent option for someone that was interested in political advocacy in general and community organizing in general. Again, I might not have known to use those terms at the times, but that's what we were doing, building power with other stakeholders, raising awareness, et cetera, to try to move people in power. But I think the reason it's still important to me now or the ways I can access it now is by making sure those connections with other issues are there. And also understanding that the environmental movement has played a really interesting role in American history and has evolved a lot. And as always is connected to a lot of other things. You know, one thing that comes to mind is thinking about Rachel Carson in the sixties. You can't understand her activism without understanding the fact that she was a woman scientist in the 1960s, who was people were able to discredit her for that. And a lot of 
a lot of these things are always all connected. And, you know, it, it's just part of this longer story of things that feel like we've made progress and then currently feel like they're being rolled back. And I think conversations on the left in general today about how do we build inclusive movements of solidarity and not just all focus on our individual priorities. So I'm wondering if you think back to your experience at Boston Latin and YouthCan, was there a particular moment or turning point you said, I'm in the mix, I'm doing something about what I care about? Yeah, I think it was a series of moments that felt really special. The Because of the activism that YouthCan had done in when I was in ninth grade, the city at the time, Mayor Tamanina, was putting together a committee to put together an advisory report about how the city should respond to and also adapt to climate change. Or I guess we call it mitigating and adapting to climate change. And they asked for a student representative or a youth representative. Uh, and I had the amazing privilege and opportunity to be that student. So over the course of my 10th and 11th grade years, I went to committee meetings with professors and business leaders and other like I think a city councilor was on the committee and realizing that, you know, when you put the work in, you're going to have the opportunity to have a voice in those spaces, how important that is to not just assume you're not going to have that opportunity. And also figuring out when I was in those spaces, you know, I'm sure it looked good for them to have a youth representative. (laughs) Not supposed to be silent, but they're not necessarily expecting me to say a lot of things. And it's also really hard to say a lot of things. You know, I'm 15, 16, and these are all really important people. Uh, So I think that was a moment of understanding growth for me of how do you take advantage of these opportunities once you get your foot in the door? And also, there's a possibility of getting your foot in the door. And getting a foot in the door is, of course, so deeply tied to power, right? (laughs) (laughs) And do you see a difference between what the students you're teaching now are capable of accessing and the students who were your peers when you were at Boston Latin? Yeah, certainly. Something that comes to mind is the gun control movement today and the ways that students from Parkland have been trying to also raise voices of students in Chicago and other cities mm-hmm. with violence all the time. I think that a lot of it has to do with the institutional privilege of Boston Latin and also the fact that BLS is like not representative of the city population for a long, long variety of reasons. But I think that my colleagues and I work really hard to give our students access to some of these opportunities, but it's something additional rather than something that happens. Not to say that people at BLS aren't working really hard to maintain that access, but I think that my students today, most of them are either first-generation Americans themselves or children of immigrants, children of first-generation Americans. So for me, I already have the advantage of being someone whose parents were involved in like American movements when they were growing up and just had the privilege of not having to question my status as an American or having other people question that status. So I think I was able to have that sort of positive entitlement of both this is a place that I have a right to say things about and that I have a responsibility to say things about. And I think a lot of my students either feel so disillusioned because they've experienced a sense of injustice in a way that I never did and probably never will, and also are not being welcomed into the conversation in an automatic way, the way that, for the most part, I was. 
So how do you try to include them in that conversation? Yeah, <laughs> I think a lot of it's about showing them role models of the past of people who have had a similar experiences to them still claiming that right to speak. Representation is definitely a huge part of it, both people in the past and also people now. So, you know, we try to bring speakers in and take them on uh, trips outside of school to make sure that they have opportunities to see the kind of people and organizations that can make change that they can be part of. But it's tough. I mean, I will never forget the day after the election last year when what really impressed me was that my students weren't were angry, but they weren't surprised because for them, it was just a continuation of a system not listening to them. Um, and that was a really big educational moment for me. Turning to climate in particular, are there things, ways that you bring climate into your classroom so that people can tell stories from their point of view? That's not something that I've gone to do a bunch yet. We have sort of current events Fridays for the government semester. So we talked about climate change for part of that. And I think the biggest thing I learned is that, and it's in a similar way to me, there's just a lot of lack of information. I think students learn about it in a science class, maybe earlier in high school, but if they haven't had to access that knowledge in three years, it's not going to super still be there. And so it was about making those connections to Hurricane Sandy. My students are mostly from South Brooklyn, so many of their homes flooded or school flooded. They certainly remember the subway delays and all of that. And the, we had a debate about, and, and then in our economic semester, we looked at a story from after Hurricane Sandy about is it right for business owners to raise the price of things like water because they can? So in the context of supply and demand, climate change offers a really interesting example of sort of pure markets, the way it would work versus, well, do we correct that for moral or just reasons? So I think making sure that students have an opportunity to see that as a through line, and I certainly have a lot of work to do there, that climate issues are very relevant to all these other you know, persistent dilemmas that we're addressing. So lots of teaching moments are available. <laughs> you said that your students are often disillusioned. Is that a structural thing? Like, how, how do you, I mean, these are very difficult issues that they're facing, and disillusionment is in some ways counterproductive, right? So what do you do about it? <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely still learning what to do about it, but... I think it's particularly hard in this current moment when I feel disillusioned, but mm -hmm. some of it's just maintaining a, a positive, but not, I guess, not naive mindset, for lack of a better word, and making sure that I'm not glossing over the obstacles, and particularly the obstacles that they face that I might not face, but making sure we're showing examples of how things have changed. You know, this year we spent a lot of time on an immigration unit and a voting unit. And not to say that there's been a straight line of progress, because that is not the course of American history, but that things are different than they used to be. And there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is because some people decided to do more than just be disillusioned. So a lot of times we would have at, at those turning points, you know, we talked about the march in Selma and having conversations in the classroom, okay, would you have participated in that march? Why or why not? Let's unpack why we feel that way. Are we scared? Do we think it's not going to make a difference? And especially when you're looking at a historical moment, the advantage of saying, well, it did make a difference. And there's things that have to be made different today. Are we going to be the ones to do that? Or are we going to 
leave it for other people and what happens if everyone leaves it for other people. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I'm wondering about is going back to your experience at Boston Latin with Youth Climate Action Network. Were there things that you learned or abilities or skills that you took on that you maybe never dreamed you would learn at Boston Latin? For sure. So some of the, like, I guess I can call them hard skills that I learned. That's an easier place to start. I learned how to write a professional email, which can initially sound not the big a deal, but has certainly been a huge life skill as we enter an ever more digital age, um, how to communicate with adults when I was still in ninth grade and how to strategically communicate with a stakeholder is a massive skill. And how to write a grant is not something I thought I was going to be doing in high school and <laughs> navigate word limits and specific questions and how to make your organization look valuable and all of that. I also really learned how to, I mean, that was where I first learned how to lead and how to make people who are new to an organization or less confident really give them opportunities to shine in the ways that they're really capable so that they then start to believe in themselves. I think that, yeah, one of the biggest things I learned in UCAM was that leadership is very much not about you and all about how you help other people be successful. And then... Leadership is not about grabbing as much power as you can. (laughs) (laughs) That's shocking. Also, like in high school, that is as shocking as you just said. So um, I think, you know, I'm really, really grateful to Donna for that. And she's the model of that. If she wanted to just do a bunch of things herself, I mean, first of all, she wouldn't accomplish as much, but she is never the one to take the credit, even though she's obviously played a huge role in all of this. Also, Youth Can and Youth Can events were the first time I really spoke in public, other than on the theatrical stage. Um, and that was huge for me, especially when there were adults there, to, to feel like I had something valuable to say and was capable of saying it in a calm and articulate manner. So, yeah, I mean, we we got to speak at events. We got to speak at a rally in Boston. We got to speak with Al Gore. Lots of crazy opportunities. And also at the summit at MIT, having a really diverse set of opportunities to figure out who's my audience, what am I trying to say? And then in general, I mean, UCAM was the first opportunity I had to work on a campaign and see it be successful. So I think I'm so lucky that I got to learn at such an early age that what I'm trying to teach my students now, if you work hard, if you build a coalition, it is possible to change things, even if it's going to be incremental and not a straight line, it's worth it. So what is it that Ms. Arnold brought to YouthCan that made a difference for you or for others? I would say a couple of things. One, just unending faith in the possibility of young people to grow and to work hard and to be able to function in the ways that we associate with adults, whether that's speaking or writing or leading. Miss Arnold never stops believing in people and never stops raising her expectations ever higher. I could have gone to a place where I just stagnated and instead she made sure that I had opportunities to, to keep pushing myself, especially when it came to things like public speaking. I also think Miss Arnold is just absolutely incredibly hardworking and dedicated and I can't say how many afternoons we spent until 6, 6.30 p.m. in her corner classroom in the basement, (laughs) going over emails, making plans. And also, I think the other thing that she shows is that 
all change making and community organizing is based on relationships. People are not going to get involved if they don't feel like they have partners that they trust and are going to support them. And that's what Masato makes you feel like right away. How are you bringing all of that to your students? Well, I think the relationships thing is the biggest thing. Relationships and expectations, which were also the themes of my teaching graduate program. A whole other story. Um, It's a really hard combination to show students that you love them, but also that love doesn't mean letting letting them make excuses for themselves, especially when students might not believe themselves that they're capable of reaching your expectations. So I think I've learned to be fairly explicit about that with them, that for me, caring about them and supporting them is pushing them to what I know they're capable of. And that's that's a long journey that doesn't happen in three class periods. But I think because I got to have teachers like Ms. Arnold and personally benefit from that kind of mentorship, um, I try to bring that to my own students. And in terms of the actual teaching that you do, this is, after all, a uh, difficult or maybe interesting time in the in in <laughs> in the annals of government let's put it that way yeah. right ever more uh, interesting every day <laughs> how do you how do you bring that to your students oh man the age-old question i think that more than ever we're living in a period that shows it's really important for students to understand some of the basic workings of government. right right now some of the biggest debate is what is a, any Congress's role in checking a president? What are the constitutional obligations? What are a president's constitutional powers? So even in the abstract of, of the specifics that are happening right now, if everyone in the country fully understood the specifics of how our federal government is supposed to operate, I think we would probably be in a different than we currently are. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think also I'm lucky to work in a remarkably diverse school Partly because of our location, we have a student body that's 35% Latino, 20% Black, 20% Asian, and 25% White. And also, not super, super ideologically diverse, but, or I should say it is ideologically diverse, not necessarily even between. But, you know, I think the students in my classroom are getting to have the kinds of difficult conversations that most Americans, including myself, don't have with people who are really different and really disagree on a lot of things. So if my classroom can be a space where people start to learn how to have those conversations, again, very much including myself, then that's a drop in a good bucket. (laughs) So can you talk a little bit about what makes youth advocacy different from movements like Occupy or something that's really not youth involved in the same way? Yeah, I think that when youth are able to show that they really understand something and are advocating for something, there's all kinds of power associated with that. You know, one of them, for lack of a better word, is the innocence thing, but that kids are not trying to advance some ulterior motive, hopefully. (laughs) Um, I think there's an understanding that, you know, we, we respect young people as being part of the future, as being idealistic because they haven't had to damper that idealism through life experience. And so it's much harder to ignore or shut down or dismiss a young person making an argument versus someone who's maybe been involved in something for a long time. And that is largely unfair, but kind of how our civic dialogue works. Of course, 
there's also a lot of people who are able to say, well, you know, you're young, so you don't understand. But I think that mindset is mostly sort of stigmatized. And I think also the power of youth advocacy is that if you make youth advocates really strong, they're going to continue to be advocates for the rest of their lives. And so it's really a long-term investment in change-making. Fun story about a time in youth again. When I was a senior, yeah, it must have been when I was a senior, I was the, like, environmental champion or something of the Beth Israel Hospital, and I had to give a 20-minute speech, and I'm a horrible procrastinator, and I had been on a school trip to Eastern Europe and wrote this speech on the plane ride back from the trip, like, the night before I had to give it, but the whole metaphor I used was, because it was a hospital, was when an ambulance is coming down the street, all the cars, even despite the fact that it's inconvenient, like, go to the side of the road so the ambulance can get by, so if we all just make small sacrifices, <laughs> things will be better. What a beautiful image. Yeah, great. great metaphor, yeah. Small sacrifices. That's a good place to start. I would think that we need much bigger sacrifices too. But Yeah. Another turning moment that I was thinking of before that I forgot to mention, I was traveling with my family and my mom and I got into this huge argument about unplugging. I think it was a phone charger. So I don't even know if that actually is one of the things that saves energy. But it just was a moment that stuck with me that the most important and the most difficult conversations about Things like this are the people that are closest to us. And it's it's easy to go around being self-righteous in the abstract. But when you're actually having conversations with people in your life about things, figuring out how to acknowledge your own humility and lack of full understanding um, and meet people where they're at is difficult and supremely important. I'd like a few lessons on how to do that. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely, I mean, also relate to your previous question about you know, how did I start to understand climate justice? I think in ninth grade, you know, we got a grant from National Grid about retrofitting our windows and our lights. And we're really focused on energy efficiency. And we're focused on sort of things within the Boston Mountain building. And then from there, started to really try to advocate. So we probably think about winding down. Um, are there things that you think we should cover that we haven't? And also, anything, any message that you would like to get across? I guess I'd say a couple things. One, to young people in high school, if you can find a group of people that care about something that you care about, don't doubt that you can change something, even if it's going to take a while, even if the changes that you work on might not be made while you're there, especially when it comes to high school. You know, I spent three years in high school working on this green roof for the school. Um, and it, it didn't happen while I was there, but that wasn't the point. And trying to build something that other people will be able to continue, at least in the high school model where everyone is just going to be leaving after four years. Right. Um, <laughs> which is, you know, is part of what's so incredible about UFGAN is that it didn't die after four years. And there's definitely been cycles of leadership and cycles of, you know, in every grade there's like cohort and, however much they're invested, et cetera. And then that brings me to just, we need to celebrate teachers like Ms. Arnold who have gone so above and beyond what their contract says, or even she's also an amazing U.S. history teacher, like sidebar. Mm -hmm. um, so the fact that she's poured so much of herself into advancing climate justice and advancing youth leadership is just really remarkable. I'm so grateful to her for that. It must give you a lot of hope. 
for the future too. It does. Yeah. I'm a hundred percent positive that I would not be where I am without what I learned and the opportunities I had in youth. And, and what you're saying really brings forth some of the most complex challenges that we have, right? You need an education system that empowers teachers like Ms. Arnold, who can then inspire their students. You need long-term public investment. And of course, all of those are absolutely necessary for climate action too, <laughs> right? So any thoughts on, on how to address both of these at the same time? Oh, yes. I would say a couple of things. I think what's happening when you look at a group like YouthGAN, teachers and young people are both populations or constituencies that I think are often taken for granted or not seen as necessary voices in rooms of power. One reason I became a teacher was because I worked in Congress one summer and noticed that a lot of the people working on education policy have not actually been teachers. And I think it's really important for the people who actually get to that place of, of making policy that they either are intimately personally connected or making sure they're maintaining relationships with the folks that are actually facing the issues. So people mm -hmm. making environmental policy need to include voices from communities that have higher rates of asthma and lower access to public transit, from communities in islands in the South Pacific that are facing extinction, um, people that are being adversely affected by this. Ayanna Presley is someone who has said People closest to the pain should be closest to the power. And I think that applies to all policy making from environmental policy making to education policy to youth policy. <laughs> I, I said this before, I think, and you highlighted this. It's about making sure the voices that need to be in the room are in the room. Fantastic. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Rebecca. We hope you've enjoyed this extended interview cut. Please be sure to check it out in context in the prior episode for Next Gen Learning to Change with Boston Latin School Youth Can. The Climate Conversations podcast is engineered and edited by Dave Lashansky. Project and media support is by my MIT Open Learning colleagues, Laura Howells and Michaela Joyce. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you find your podcasts. Join the community on climate.mit.edu and be in touch at Twitter climatex underscore MIT and Facebook, group name MIT Climate. For my co-hosts, Rajesh Kasturi-Rangan and Dave Damlor, I'm Kurt Newton. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>